0: Well, great. Great to see you here this morning and uh, to the, uh, the crowd that's left after you found out the air conditioning went on. You know, the thing is, we were just talking about the other day how one of the great heroes of Florida is the guy that invented air conditioning. And uh, some of the old timers were telling me when they first moved here, there was no A.C., you just looked for uh, trees to sit under and stand under. And uh, that's the reason they appreciated trees so much. And the shade around here so much. So we're experiencing that a little bit today and we apologize for that. Pray that you be patient uh, with us as we're patient with the school. I want us to take a Bible this morning and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. One of my favorite chapters uh, in the whole Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. And so as we open this, I want to ask you a question. Do you ever think that maybe there's something more? You go to work and maybe you've made some money over your lifetime, and you think, well, you know, there's something out there that's more, but money's not it. Success is really not it. You know, I go to school, I make the grades, and, you know, I graduated. That's probably not it. And even sometimes you go to church, you go to different churches perhaps, you've visited different churches, you think, oh, the music's good, you know, the preaching is, um, you know, appropriate and applicable to my life. But then you go out, and it really doesn't ever change anything. And so you wonder, is there really something more? Is there something more out there? Many people are not attending uh, quite as often as they used to. As a matter of fact, most people, uh, it seems like when they go to church once a month, they think they're regular now. Didn't used to be that way. We're, We're finished, I guess, with cultural Christianity, and people come because they want to. They want to get something out of it. And other people have dropped out totally, and they think, you know, I'm okay with God, I think, and but they just don't go to church. So are you looking today for something more? I remember um, reading a book recently, and it said, you know, you do ministry based upon your past. And when I was raised in this certain church, it was a very sweet church, small church, and um, the preacher was a good guy. His, his son was my best friend. Uh, the music was fine, but I never, I'm always looking for something more. it has got to be something more than simply this. And so a lot of my ministry, as I look back over the times, ha- has been influenced by that. You read about somebody like William Borden, around the turn of the last, not last century, century before that. William Borden was heir to the Borden fortune. And um, when he was in high school, he graduated at 16 years old, very smart guy. And he, uh, his parents just let him go and, and let him to go on a, a trip around the world. And so he visited a lot of Muslim countries. He visited a lot of third world countries. He came back and said, I'm going to be a missionary. Family didn't like that at all. Said, so, no, you're going to be heir to the throne here, and uh, you're going to, what, what we want you to do is take over uh, the business one day. Excuse me, I'm going to move this over a little bit. We want you to take over the business one day, and um, in order to do that, you know, you just sort of got to be, be ready. And so they sent him to Yale University. He found out that at Yale, uh, he surveyed the students, and he kind of surveyed the faculty, and he found it to be uh, very liberal. Uh, very humanistic in, ph- in their philosophy, also sin-laden and sin-burdened uh, and ridden. And so he and a buddy of his started a prayer, serve, prayer meeting. And then the prayer meeting grew into a Bible study. And before he graduated, at the, um, 1909, four years later, 1,000 of the 1,300 people that attended Yale University were actually going to one of these Bible studies. And so here's a young man, mature beyond his years, A strong calling in his life. In fact, one of the things that he wrote down is basically, he wrote down his Bible back then, no reserves. So how does a man like that have a changed life? You think, what about me? And Why can't I get it? Why can't I come in touch and get in touch with God like that? Well, there are many Bible characters that are in touch, got in touch. Isaiah was one of them. He had this wonderful and great encounter with God and it changed his life forever. And one of the things I noticed about Isaiah as I read this, we, we discover in the first five chapters, he's really prophesying. He's a prophet. So he's prophesying to Judah, the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And uh, Assyria was about to come in and invade and they eventually did invade the northern kingdom and then left the southern kingdom alone uh, for Babylon to take over about 150 years later. And so He was seeing these dangers, and back in chapter 6, we find now he's reviewing his calling. He's kind of looking back. He says, now this this is how it happened to me, and this was my salvation and my calling in life. And so as we look at this scripture, I find some commonality among those who really had these great encounters with God. Uh, Number one, there always seems to be an upward look. God came first. You know, God shows up, and then there's an inward look. It causes an inward look. And finally, an outward look as well. So let's look at these three things. First of all, when this encounter with God begins and life change of really seeing something more, really making a difference, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and his train of his robe filled the temple. Now, the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah was a king of Judah for 52 years. Now, if you just get the picture there's a lot of, uh, there were a lot of kings of, of Judah, the southern kingdom, 20 as a matter of fact. Eight of them were good. And every time there was a good king in, Israel, in Judah, God blessed the nation. God blessed the people. And every time there was a bad king, and not, things didn't go so well. So for 52 years, he was, uh, he was living in peace. He was living in prosperity. Now the king died. Now this is significant to Isaiah. In particular, that he was a part of the royal family. He was an elitist of his day. And as he was surveying, you can just imagine him being at the funeral. He would have been there because he's part of the royal family. He needed comforting. He needed some cheering up. He needed some encouragement. So he goes down to the temple. And something happened to him. He never would have expected. In fact, one writer even said this. He said the last thing that Isaiah expected was to see God in the temple. Now, you think about that for just a moment. You come to church, and maybe the last thing you expected was not to have air conditioning, but besides that, you came to church, maybe you heard some good music. You expected some good music. You expected a sermon, and the last thing you expected was to really see the Lord. What what if God really showed up here today? What if he really showed up so much that you couldn't stop talking about it? What if that happened? That's unexpected in our churches today, and that's what happened to Isaiah. All of a sudden, God shows up. He sees this vision of the Lord. He says, above him stood the seraphim, and these were angels. The only time they were really mentioned in the Bible, they obviously ministered before the throne of God, and he says, each one had six wings, two he covered his face. Now, the glory of God here is so great that even, <coughs> excuse me, even the angels cannot stand to look upon the glory of God. With two they covered their feet. Humility. With two they flew. Always ready for service. They're in contact with God. And it moves them to do something outwardly. And it says here in verse 3. And one called to another said holy. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook. At the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke, things were getting shaken up. We can find this word shook means to tremble. It means to quake. Why? Why was it shaking up? Why why, why were things shaking up? Why was the veil in the temple torn when Jesus Christ died on the cross and the earth shook and the graves were open? We see this all throughout the Bible. When God shows up, things are shaken. Well, it says here because the whole earth is full of his glory. And when you and I think about the glory of God, we have maybe a lot of things that we are reminded of. But one of the things it really means in the original language is weightiness. Okay, weight. Now, just imagine yourself, you're there in a body of water, maybe a swimming pool. And you're thinking, well, I'm going to take my uh, rubber ducky and I'm going to throw it on the pool. What's going to happen? It's going to float, right? But if you take a hammer and throw it into the water, what's it going to do? it 's going to splash and it 's going to sink. Why? Because the weight of the hammer is greater than the weight of the water. The rubber ducky was on the surface because the weight of the water is is heavier and weightier than the uh, weight and the, uh, of, of the uh, of the duck of the little play toy. so we look at this and what happens is that God is weightier he 's more glorified than we are, and so When he hits our lives, it shakes. They're rearranged. Just like a splash in the water, and the water is rearranged. We are rearranged, and who in the world really wants that? I mean, we want to get close enough to God to have him bless us, but we don't want our lives shaken up. And that's what happened here in in this story in Isaiah. Why did it happen? Why was things were splashing and shaking and trembling? It says, because the Lord's holiness. He says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, when, when you see repetition repetition, in the Hebrew language, you will find that means an emphasis. There's an emphasis being drawn here. It says holy, holy, holy. You know, we, we talk about things like the characteristics. They're called the attributes of God uh, theologically. We talk about them, and somebody says, well, the sovereignty of God. Man, that's the main attribute. That's what kind of runs the whole show, and... I don't see that in the Bible. That's the number one. Act. No, I don't see that. Somebody else says, well, it's love. Love is the number one attribute of the Bible. Oh my goodness, you know, you know people, it's all about God's love. It's all about, yeah, I don't see that in the Bible. In fact, seven out of 12 times, when God is described, he's described as holy. I'm not saying that's the number one attribute. The Bible doesn't say he has a number one. I think I just look at a holistic God who has all these things going on at one time. But certainly, holiness is to be recognized and it's something that we're not always drawn to. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan preacher a couple of centuries ago during the First Great Awakening, was talking about 12 things that we know that are indications that we are a believer, a Christian. And one of them was that we appreciate the holiness of God. Now, why would he say that? Well, because every other attribute or most of your other attributes we can use to our advantage. For example... You say, I worship God because of the grace and forgiveness of God. Well, I can use that. I can use that to better my own life, uh, get rid of my guilt. Um, On the other hand, somebody says, well, about the power of God. Hey, I've got my, somebody says, I've got my own agenda. I'm doing my thing, and I just want God to help me in my agenda. It'll help you. The love of God, hey, that'll help you. The wisdom of God, making the right decisions, you need that. But the holiness of God is not so, much of a utility for us. In fact, when we think about it, the holiness of God, when the holiness of God appears before us, it makes us feel less than. You know, it makes us feel guilty. I mean, who wants that? I know that um, there's, uh, um, there's there are television shows, and I watch television every now and then, and I used to watch this uh, little television show called Castle. You might remember that a few years ago? And you know, that, that, that tension between uh, the two officer, or the officers and the author, and all the time you're you're thinking they're going to get together, they're going to get together, and when they finally do, the show's over, right? Nobody ever watched it anymore. But there was a tension there. In in a recent show that I watch sometimes, Blue Bloods, uh, you have the the youngest one of the uh, of the royal family, you know, of, of New York. There, I guess, and police officers, uh, he has a partner that's um, uh, a little blonde girl, and there's always this tension going on. They're always discussing dating, and you can tell they're jealous, going back and forth. There's, there's a wall there. Now, recently they got engaged, and some of you know that, and so the show will probably end. But anyway, you, we've got this wall that we put up. Why do we have that wall? Well, my goodness, so we have this wall because we're partners here in crime, fighting crime. And we don't want to cross that barrier, and we can't be partners anymore, or we can't, respond well uh, at, at a scene, a crime scene as well. So we keep that barrier. Well, we do the same thing with God. We keep that barrier there. We want to get close, but not too close. Why? Well, I think one of the reasons why is we see in this passage the holiness of God. We become convicted with everything that's going on in our life, and we see that God is doing something in our life And wow, you know, we feel a little guilty. But I want you to notice that when this happens, when we see the upward look, it does cause us to take that inward look. Look in verse 5. And Isaiah said, woe is me. Now, this doesn't mean woe, you know, like horses. It means impending judgment. And the Old Testament says, I'm done. How can I go on? I am so convicted, there's no way I can ever get forgiveness of this. He says, look at this conviction. I, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwelt among a midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? How do I know this? Because my eyes have seen the Lord, the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, why would he say lips? I've always wondered that. One of my favorite passages in the Bible, and I've looked and looked, oh, well, maybe it's part of our worship, and I've kind of preached that before, and maybe it is. But one thing we need to realize about Isaiah is that <clears throat> Isaiah was a man who was, he was a speaker, he was an orator. And he did things for God with his lips. And he says, God, even my lips betray me. Even my, my talent betrays me because I'm not doing this for the right reason. I'm unclean. Now, please keep in mind one of the things I want you to realize is every call of God, every encounter with God is personal. You have a different need than Isaiah has. Jeremiah, when he was called, he says, Lord, I'm just too young. Very humble. God needed to build him up. He needed to raise him up. Moses said, God, I'm just too old. I can't even speak well. Oh, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there for you. Isaiah needed humbling. Uh, you can see it now. I mean, here's Uzziah dead in 52 years. Well, now my generation, I'm going to be in charge. My cousin's going to be in charge. Man, we're going to really get things done now. He's part of the leadist group. He needed humbling, and he was humbled. He said, God, even the things I think are good about me are just plain not good because I'm not even doing it with the right motive. Tim Keller, who is a Presbyterian minister up in New York, just recently retired, and he made this comment. He said, even the things we do that are good are done for the wrong reason. They're done to make us feel good. Now, he's not talking about being in Christ. He's not talking about walking with the Lord. He's talking about outside of that. You say, well, that's not true. We see protesters going, right, man, they're, they're really into it. They're, they're doing everything they can. Well, I was re- recently reading, if I can find this real quick. Yeah, I was re- recently reading, and uh, there's a book out. I haven't read the book, the whole book, but Bowling Alone, with Robert Putnam. And he said, he's talking about this whole thing about us being so passionate, involved in politics and everything around us. 25% decline in voting in the last 30 years. 10% decline in church services. 50% decline in activity outside the church. 50% drop in giving to churches. You see, the passion's waning. Even though we, we talk about it with our lips, even around the country, even simple thing like voting Many of the people that are saying, I'm so involved in this. I really believe in it. Don't even vote. So you see, it's something that we do on the outside to say, I'm worthy. And, and Isaiah is saying, I'm not worthy. And he compares himself to God. You know, I, I, remember, uh, I remember we had a bass player uh, in our church, the very um, first band we ever had in our church. He was really good, he was really good. And uh, he went off to Nashville. He wanted to, you know, play in Nashville, the Grand Ole Opry, and Christian music, and all that. And so later, about I don't know, a year later, we got kind of in touch with him, and how you doing? And he said, Oh, great, got this job in the music industry, kind of sound more sound and audio than and video than uh, than actual playing the bass. And said, so, Well, how how's your bass playing going? He said, He just laughed. He said, Let me tell you something. The guy sitting on the park bench playing bass with his guitar, his bass case open, and you're throwing change into it? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, he's a better bass player than I am. Once he saw, he said, I'm pretty good. I can play the bass. Then he gets among people that can really play. Some of you think, hey, <laughs> I'm really good looking. You know, hey, look at the person on your, on your right. Now look at the one on your left. Hey, if it's not them, it must be you, Right? And so you think, hey, I'm pretty good looking. And so you go to Hollywood, and you find out something different. You see, we compare ourselves. And he thought, hey, I'm so good. I am so holy. He compares himself to God and he says, I am undone. I am lost. That's what he says. I'm lost. Even the things, good things that I do are filthy. Filthy. Not only in God's eyes, but now in my eyes. We see... An inward conviction that's going on in his life. But I want you oh, look at look verse 6. Then one of the seraphims flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he should take in the, from the tongs of the altar. How hot was this? How hot was this? Somebody asked me. So hot the angels couldn't even touch it. And usually it's, it's a sign of judgment. Fire is judgment in the Bible, but not here. It's cleansing. Notice what happens. He touched one touch of this burning coal to his lips was enough to forgive the sins of a lifetime. Why? Because he says in verse 7, he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It's been forgiven. Somebody's taken your place. He's grateful. Well, how grateful? How grateful are we? His life was changed because... He saw the Lord high and lifted up. And I know this is something physical and we, we have to depend on something spiritual. On the other hand, this happened one time. We can have a spiritual relationship, this kind of spiritual relationship with God every day. He's grateful. One of the problems we have is that we, we're not grateful. I'm not grateful. How grateful are you? Let me give you this little illustration. Suppose you went off on a trip and um, while you were gone, somebody stopped by your house. Somebody was maybe house-sitting for you. And uh, they stopped by your house, and, uh, and they, you owed some money, and they paid the bill. And so when you got back, the, the guy said, look, you know, somebody stopped by your house, and you owed some money, but I, I wrote out the check for you. I paid it for you. Well, thanks. How many of you wouldn't be grateful for that? Okay, no, nobody else wants to volunteer? You know, your hand's gone to sleep? How many of you be grateful for that? All right, about half of you. The rest of you say, well, I guess I deserve it. But anyway, you got, you got uh, somebody there. And uh, he says, well, how grateful should I be? Well, it depends. How big was the bill, right? And so he said, well, how much was the bill? Oh, you know, you ran through a couple of tolls, and it was $6.52, and I just paid it. Oh, well, thanks. Appreciate that. Or somebody were to come by and say, you know, uh, how much was it? And he said, well, the guy from the IRS came by and it seems that you owed a couple of hundred thousand dollars worth of back taxes and penalties. Oh, no. What am I going to do? I don't have the money to pay that. Hey, relax. I wrote out a check. Paid for it. You're kidding. Now, how many of you would... Don't, don't raise your hand. Just, it just embarrasses me, you know, when you don't participate. No, but seriously, how many of you would be grateful for that. You'd be a lot more grateful than the tolls, right? So gratitude depends on how much that person went to the extra mile for you. Now, before that, I'm not saying Isaiah had no gratitude. I'm sure he's thinking, hey, you know, God, I'm pretty good. I'm better than, than most, but I do have some sin in my life. Thank you very much for forgiving me. But now he says, oh, God, even the things that I do. You see, he saw himself. As God saw him. And because of that, when God forgave him, there was a life-changing attitude. Why do I know that? Because of verse 8 and following. Because we see an upward look, an inward look that always leads to an outward look. If you want to know if you've had that upward look, let me ask you about your outward look. Look in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Now, Jeremiah said, Lord, I'm too young. Moses said, I'm too old. Can't speak. Here he just, send me. Where where are you going to send me, God? Now, no, he didn't ask that. There was such a life-changing experience that happened to his life. It didn't matter. God, if you want somebody, can I go? Would you let me do it? You know, we're talking about sharing our faith, about giving, we're talking about serving. Well, all that can become a legalism unless it's coming from the heart, unless it's coming from someone who's had that life-changing type of experience. One of the things I, I told the story about William Borden, one of the things I noticed about our young people, and um, I've talked to many of them over the years, and they said the number one thing that had the biggest influence on their life was going on the mission field having mission trips. And one of the things we used to have for years and years was a a global impact conference. Haven't had that last four or five years. And it's where 25, 30 missionary families come to our church. Uh, People house them. We have uh, a big service on Wednesday night, Sunday morning. We have some preaching Sunday night. And and we have a, a time for a call to the mission field. 118 people are right now involved in ministry that have grown up or come through Cross Life Church over the last 25 years, most of them could look back to the Global Impact Conference and going to a mission trip, going on a mission trip that really changed their life. We're gonna bring that back in the fall. But I just thought I'd throw that out. Notice this changed life. I'm available, God, I'm 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 faithful, and, and God says, Okay, here's what you're getting into. I'm gonna tell you now that you volunteer. You kind of jumped the gun here on me, Isaiah, and you volunteer. But Let me tell you the call. Verse 9. He said, go and say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Boy, this doesn't sound like God to us. It just doesn't. See, one of the things we need to realize, the word of God does not come back to God void, as the Bible says. But the same sun that, hard, that softens the wax hardens the clay. The same word of God that softens our heart and draws people to, uh, to him also hardens our heart against the Lord. How, what happens? We, just, we refuse to believe. I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to do anything about that. I'm not going to respond to that. And over a period of time, Romans 1 comes into play. Romans 1 tells us, look, God says, I'm giving them over to a reprobate mind. I'm, just, I'm giving them what they want. They want a life away from me? Okay, that's what they want. I'm going to surrender, you might say. That's the wrong word. But I'm going to give in and let them have their life. And that's what Isaiah is preaching. That's what God's preaching to Isaiah. But he says this. There's hope. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he says, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant.'" Houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far, far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. This happened. Assyria came in and conquered the northern kingdom. And then later, 150 years later, Babylon conquered the, uh, the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was scattered everywhere. Some of the, some of the uh, Babylonian people came in and scattered some of the Israelites uh, also in Judah, Mainly like Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. They were somewhere else. They scattered them. And so the judgment of God, he says, is going to come. But He says in verse 13, and though a tenth remain, a tenth. He says, look, you're going to have some fruit in the ministry. And you're going to make a difference in the lives of, a positive difference in the lives of 10% of the people. I know some Muslim missionaries right now would love 10%. They'd love that. And so there's hope here, but then in the end he says, whose stump remains in this oak, when it's fell, the holy seed is in the stump. What is this holy seed? Of course it's Christ. It's in the very root of things, but he says one day this seed's going to sprout out and there's going to be a new heaven, and new earth and you're going to be a part of that. And the people that you've influenced for the cause of God are going to be part of that as well. What about us today? You know, we can go to a lot of churches, a lot of different things. Here's what I'm, I'm trying to pledge to you that I pledged 25 years ago. And I'm not saying we've always been super consistent on the why, but I'm going to give you the why we do things right now. We do things the way we do things and do things for us. To be so close to God and have such passion for God that it makes a difference in the rest of the world, our world and the rest of the world. What we want to do something that maybe. The world can't do, of course, is increase your passion for the Lord. And that begins with encounters just like this. Dwight L. Moody, the the former great um, um, evangelist and pastor, really just an evangelist of the 19th century, was sitting in a meeting like this in a small church. And the pastor got up and said, no, God is not seen. God has never seen. And the world has never seen. What God can do with one man, one person, that's totally committed to Christ. And Dwight L. Moody left that room that night and says, I'm going to be that man. And unlike Isaiah, he bore fruit all the way around the world. Let's get back to William Borden as I close. William Borden, 1909, graduated from uh, Yale University. And as he graduated... His family wanted him to go into the ministry with him. And as he was going, he, he just, I mean, the business with him, and he said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be a missionary to the Muslims in China. And the, I'm not saying they disowned him, but they virtually said, you're, you're never going to be a part of our business. Then We're moving on. Gave up a fortune. But in his Bible, he had written no reserves in 1905. In 1909, he wrote down the word, he said, not only no reserves, but also no retreat. Well, he went to Egypt upon graduation, about 19, actually 1912. He went to Egypt to study Arabic because he wanted to be a missionary to the Muslims. And while he was in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis. And at the age of 25, William Borden died. And you think, wow, what a life wasted. Well... He certainly did influence a thousand people at Yale. But in in the Bible, in his Bible, he wrote down these three phrases. Two of them are review. He wrote this down right before his death No reserves, no retreat, no regrets. We want that kind of life, don't we? I'm speaking to you, some of you, in in an area maybe, and both campuses. You're, you feel like, oh, I'm just not ready for that. I'm not, I'm not really trying to get you ready for anything. All I'm saying is, the secret, You know, a lot of TV evangelists, and preachers will tell you, this is the kind of life you want to live, and boy, God's going to bless you and favor all that kind of... I'm trying to tell you this morning how to get it done, how to do it. It all comes about with our passion for God, and that begins with our encounter with God. And that's why that salvation experience is so important. In verse... 9, it says, verse, verse 7, it says, your sin atoned for. All the way through the book of Isaiah, he talks about Jesus coming, Jesus dying on the cross. I believe that's what he's talking about here. It's pretty obvious that Jesus Christ is that atonement for our sin. And when we come to know him as our personal Savior and Lord, it's an encounter with him that's so life-changing, we should never look back. Has that happened to you? Has it? If not, let me give you a chance right now this morning to come to that point. Let's bow for prayer. In the quietness of this moment, if you've never received Christ into your life, so well, I think I've been baptized, and I think that, you know, I grew up in church and things like that. We're not talking about that kind of stuff. We're talking about a time where Jesus Christ came into your life, and because he came into your life, It was like God whatever you want I'm here because it was a life changing experience. If you have not had that let me encourage you not to doubt your salvation anymore. Pray this prayer with me. Ask God to work in your life. It goes like this Lord God thank you for loving me thank you for going to the cross and dying there for my sins. I open up the door of my heart I ask you to come in. Save me God Help me to see you like I've never seen you before. Help me to see myself like I've never seen before. And then help me to leave this building today. If nobody else has the victory, that I would have that victory in my heart. Splash my life. Shake my life. Rearrange my life. For your glory and for my good. In Jesus' name. With heads bowed and eyes closed. I'm going to ask Don to come, and here's here's the invitation. The altar is open. We've got a few pieces of carpet out here. If you can't kneel, you can stand, and you're just coming today and saying, God, I want that encounter, those kind of encounters with you. I want to know you. I want to know myself. I want to have the passion and fire in my heart the way that was preached this morning out of Isaiah 6. You come. If you receive Christ, come and greet Don and we'd like to know about it. We want to help you grow in the Lord.